Amen. Thank you, praise team, Chrissy. Beautiful song. Well, we're in the middle of a study in 1 Corinthians, and if you have your Bibles and want to follow along with your phone, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And um, this is a tough passage, and uh, it's on the Holy Spirit, and I've wrestled with it a lot this week. And I want to start off with kind of an illustration to kind of hopefully land us into the text as well. But I've been recently reading a book called The Matthews Men, which is seven brothers in the war against Hitler's U-boats. Anybody watch the Hitler Chandler and love history here? The History Channel? Um, it's a lot about World War II, and I'm not a big history buff, so I'm kind of... Uh, this was helpful. And at the beginning of the book, he says that almost since the start of the war, he says the British have been able to pinpoint the location of the U-boats at sea by intercepting their da- daily radio transmissions. And Donitz, who was a general, German general, he required each U-boat to check in with headquarters every day by radio. And these radio transmissions were picked up by a British network of direction-finding stations scattered all along the Atlantic coast. Once two stations picked up the same U-boat's transmission, they could use the cross-bearings to pinpoint the sub's location. The British used the information to route convoys away from the U-boats. Donitz did not think that these radio transmissions posed any risk unless the Allies broke the German Enigma code and could read the coded messages, something he thought could never happen. He and the rest of the German high command considered Enigma unbreakable. The code relied on Enigma machines, which which resembled complicated typewriters, to encrypt messages in a way that only Enigma machines set identically could decrypt. The German Navy used an extra layer of encryption in its variation of the Enigma code, which made the naval Enigma code even more difficult to break. So each U-boat carried an Enigma machine, and Donitz confidently sent all his orders to the U-boats through this Enigma. British cryptologists broke the code in early 1941 after a captured U-boat yielded an Enigma machine and codebook. By May, the British could read the Germans' most secret communications. That capability was so precious that the British used it sparingly to avoid giving the Germans any reason to suspect that the code had been compromised. And many believe that that was the turning point in the war. Now, I give you that by way of illustration because the British have been intercepting these daily radio transmissions, but they couldn't understand them because they didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the Enigma machine to decrypt the cryptid messages until they got themselves an Enigma machine and a codebook from a German U-boat, which they were usually successful in blowing their own U-boats up but this one they did not, and we were able to get a hold of this Enigma machine. Well, we have this revelation from God. It's the Word of God revealed to us. But unless the Spirit of God opens our eyes and enables us to understand this revelation, we're not able to understand the spiritual truths. We need both the Word of God, His revelation, and the Spirit of God for illumination. 
That's what Paul is communicating here in 1 Corinthians 2. Now, the reason this is so important is because there's all these schisms and people are saying, I follow Paul and I follow Cephas and I follow Paulus because they think because this guy's a better preacher and better speaker, that it must be through this human wisdom of this person that I'm understanding these things. And Paul wants to say just the opposite. And so he's boiling it down to us to say the reason there shouldn't be any schisms, any divisions, is because only God gives the increase. Only God opens eyes. It doesn't matter who the speaker is. It's the Lord. So hear what he's saying. I'm actually going to begin at verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we did not impart, we did not impart wisdom, although it is, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. They pray for us. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us. Help us to understand these things. That it would profit us and bring glory to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Three points this morning where we're going in the the text here. We're going to look at the wisdom that Paul preached, that's verses 6 to 9, that this wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit, verses 10 to 13. And then last, we're going to ask a question, who has the mind of Christ? So three things. And the first is the wisdom that Paul preached, verses 6 to 9. And I want you to see here, I hope you can stick with me, this is not an easy text. He sets up a contrast in verses 6 and 7. And in verse 6 and 7, Paul is saying that he does impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed 
to pass away. So we get this idea in verse 6 of something that's incredibly transient. It's here and then it's gone. It's not a wisdom of this age, rulers of this age, doomed to pass away, but instead the wisdom that he is imparting is this wisdom that has been before the ages, and it's for our glory. And so the wisdom of God is timeless. It's not God's plan B. It's not God's plan B or C or D or Z. It's the wisdom of God is decreed before the ages. Now, the wisdom that Paul is speaking of is in contrast to the wisdom of the world because the wisdom of this world is called the wisdom of this age. Now, I want you to, this is a big term that Paul is using here. And so if you, if you can go back in your Bible, he begins this in, in 1 Corinthians 1.20 and the book ends with 1 Corinthians 3.18 and I'll read them both. So in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul said, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then at the very end of the bookend, he says it again. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So now look at 2, 6 to 8 and see where he's going with this. He's saying it's a wisdom that he's imparting is, is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. And so this wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages, is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of glory being crucified for us. And he's saying this is not God's plan B or C or D or Z. It was decreed, and now it's being revealed. What was concealed is now being revealed. And so Paul resolved, you remember, to know nothing among them but Christ crucified. The cross was not an accident in history. It's not Jesus being overpowered by Roman and Jewish authorities. It's God's power to save us by becoming weak for us and taking our infinite and eternal punishment upon himself on a tree. That's the wisdom of God. And Paul goes on to say that the rulers of this age, had they understood this, they would not have crucified. And how is he called? The Lord of glory. He's either the Lord of glory or the servant of shame. And notice they're direct opposites. The Lord of glory became a servant. And he became shame and sin. And yet he's called here the Lord of glory to get our attention because the ones that are blind didn't know he was the Lord of glory. They were blind to God's eternal plan to save us. And that's why Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so 1 Corinthians 2.9 is one of the most misused passages in the Bible. And I have been chief. I have misused this text many times. And when you see this on a plaque or referred to in a funeral service, what is 1 Corinthians 2.9 always referring to? What no eye has seen or heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What are we referring to? Heaven. What's it referring to in the text? The cross. The cross. The cross. He resolved to know nothing among them but Christ crucified. 
And he's telling them that they've crucified the Lord of glory. It was the hidden wisdom of God, once concealed, now revealed. And Jesus is God's revelation who's come down from heaven, went all the way to a Roman cross of wood on Calvary. And the Bible says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his stripes we are healed. One commentator described 1 Corinthians 2.9 like this. He said, the ear, the eye, the ear, and heart, they're the organs of cognition and Semitic imagery. And what he's saying is these things did not come from empirical sources. The eye had not seen. Traditional knowledge that being passed on in community, no ear has not heard. Or intuitive insight that the heart had not conceived this, nor was it accessible to them. Nobody thought this up. Nobody thought this was possible. Nobody thought that, that that's, oh, this is what God is doing. God is going to crucify his own son on a tree. That was folly. It was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but the the cognitive equipment was not there in a human mind to to grasp this. And so if we think that we're going to come to God through human reasoning, it's not going to happen. It's beyond nature, beyond ideas, beyond man's imagination. But no eye has seen, nor, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God prepared. And it, and it actually in the, uh, this is a quote from Isaiah 64, 4. And it's quoting here the Septuagint, but in the Hebrew, it's for those who wait for him, or those who love him here is what we've translated from the Septuagint. And the idea is that God has done it. He did what man did not see, hear, or conceive, or imagine. Matthew Henry put it like this. For this idea of understanding this. He says, see the privilege of those who enjoy the gospel revelation. To them, the types are unveiled, mysteries made plain and prophecies interpreted and the secret counsels of God published and laid open. The wisdom of God in a mystery is now manifest to the saints. And the wisdom of God is that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, became the servant of shame. And the Bible says we esteemed him not. And it goes on to say, in Isaiah 53, that he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. I was just studying this this week, and I was writing down everything that we got and everything that Jesus got, and looking at the great exchange in Isaiah 53. Jesus got griefs. Jesus got sorrow. Jesus got stricken. He got smitten by God. He got afflicted. He got pierced. He got wounded. He got crushed. He got punishment. He got chastisement. Why? Why would the Lord of glory get all of those things? Because it says for, for, in our place, for our sin. Jesus got everything that we deserved. And what do we get? Upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Peace with God. Healing spiritually. And then it says he accounted many righteous. We get righteousness. That's the wisdom of God to make sinners right with him so he can be holy and just and loving to punish sin and yet still bring sinners to himself.
And this wisdom is revealed, verses 10 to 13, by the Spirit. He says these, verse 10, these things has God revealed to us through the Spirit. And then in verse 12, it says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God reveals these things to us by his spirit. You see, this is revelation, God's word. But the only way to understand this revelation and to love it and treasure it and to see Jesus as the Lord of glory is to have a spiritual antenna to receive it. You see, we believe in sola scriptura, and we we love that term as uh, in the Reformed tradition, the first tenet of the Reformation, sola scriptura, was, was scriptures alone. But I think sometimes we do a disservice in believing that. Because in one sense, it isn't just the scriptures alone. I remember when I was a new Christian, it was at Catonsville Community College. I hadn't been a Christian a year. And I mean, I, ha- I was just starting to read the epistles. I hadn't even read all the gospels for the first time. Certainly hadn't read most of the Old Testament. And I mean, I was like little knowledge, you know, 17-year-old knucklehead, okay? Brand new baby Christian. And I meet a girl, a lady in one of my classes, and she's, in, she's like probably in her 40s. And she tells me matter-of-factly that she's read the Bible through seven times, cover to cover. And I'm just, as a new Christian, I'm just amazed. But what was so amazing was she was blind as a bat. She knew nothing of who Jesus was, nothing of what it means to treasure Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She was as lost as when she started the first time. Sola Scriptura was not enough. She didn't have the spiritual antenna that went off to see that Jesus is precious and better than anything that this world has to offer, and he is the one that has made everything. She was blind to that. She was still trusting in herself and reading her, putting herself over the Bible rather than submitting to it. Scary. She was like the British. She could hear. She was getting correspondence, but it was gibberish. It wasn't Jesus, Lord of glory. Is it gibberish for you this morning? Or is it Lord of glory? One of the ways you know is that do you love it? Do you delight in it? When the lights come on, you will love to sing the praises of God. You will love to be with God's people. You will want to be at church. You won't have to be kicked out of bed and dragged to church. And, and, and you won't be falling asleep during the sermon. You all of a sudden, the lights go off and, man, you just want to sing the praises of God. Because the lights come on and you realize, oh my goodness, I've been, where have I been? Where have I been? That's what it was like for me. All of a sudden, I'd start crying during a worship service. And let me tell you, there wasn't any crying before that. It was crying because I couldn't wait to get out. You see, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on 1 Corinthians 2.12, and I sent out the link of two of his messages, and you guys, several of you sent back, and I think the second one I listened to was better than the first one. But he says this. He doesn't, he says, 
He's commenting on this verse 2.12 that says that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, that he's given us the Spirit. And he doesn't say we have found or we've discovered or at last by experimentation we've arrived. He says we've received. We've received. He says a pulper can receive. An ignoramus can receive. A little child can receive. It isn't discovery. It's receiving. It's receiving a revelation. And then he goes on to say that it's freely given by God. This isn't given by achieving. It's by receiving. These things are freely given. It's not given to those who, have, who have, are, are much smarter, to the best and to the brightest, or to the VIPs, or those who've gotten over 1350 on their SAT, that you've got a better shot at understanding this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying just the opposite. He's saying that God, by his spirit, it's a whole different language that God is speaking. When, he, when the spirit connects with the word of God, then you have a double connection. And without it, you can have all of this revelation. You can look through it with all of your human wisdom. But until the spirit causes one's eyes to be born again as we open the service, and Paul said to Nicodemus, or Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a scary thing the way the the Bible describes us in our natural state. He says here in 1 Corinthians 2.14, if you wonder why why do I believe in Reformed theology, it's verses like 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot receive them. He doesn't get it. He has to be opened. The Bible describes us as dead, dry bones that life has to be breathed into us. Describes us as dead and trespasses and sins who have to be resurrected. The paddles of the Holy Spirit have to boom and bring us to life or we, we just we, we're a casket case. God has to do what we cannot do. Listen to what David Garland his great commentary on 1 Corinthians his summary on this. And he says, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, what what we speak is not the wisdom of this age, but it's the wisdom of God. It's not what the rulers of this age knew, but what the revelation of God makes known. It's not what the spirit of this world offers, but what the spirit of God gives. It's not what's taught by human wisdom, but what is taught by the spirit. It's not what the natural human faculties can perceive, but it's what the spirit enables one to discern. These positive statements reveal that this wisdom was foreordained and prepared by God. It's a mystery that's hidden, but revealed by God to the mature, to those who love God, to those who've received the spirit. And only spiritual persons know what has been given to us by God, and they have the mind of Christ. And Paul asserts that Paul's wisdom comes through revelation. Revelation comes through the Spirit, and only spiritual persons receive this revelation. This revelation points us to the mind of Christ, whose selfless obedience sets the tone for the Christian community life. Paul's not on the defensive, but he's offering another argument that exposes the foolishness and wickedness of the Corinthians' cliquishness. So who has the mind of Christ? Some of you going through this class with, with uh, Pastor Ben in the sanctuary on making sense of God. And there's a story, an illustration early on in the book from the life of Becky Pippert, who wrote the book Out of the Salt Shaker. And uh, how's it go? Out of the Salt Shaker, into the world or something? Whatever. All right. It's an old book. <laughs> it's a goodie. 
But she talks about taking some, some uh, audit, auditing some graduate level classes at Harvard University. And one of them was called Systems of Counseling. And at one point, the professor presented a case study in which therapeutic methods were used to help a man uncover his deep hostility and anger towards his mother. This helped the client understand himself in new ways. And so Pippard then asked the professor how he would have responded if the man had asked for help to forgive her. And the professor responded that forgiveness was a concept that assumed moral responsibility and many other things that scientific psychology could not speak to. Don't force your values about forgiveness onto the patient, he argued. And when some of the students responded with dismay, the professor tried to relieve the tension with some humor. If you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. Where are you looking for a changed heart this morning? My question to you. You see, I'm fearful many of us are doing the same thing. We're looking in the wrong department. The Bible makes it clear that if you're looking anywhere inside of yourself, your wisdom, your intellect, your deciphering skills, you're looking in the wrong department. It's gibberish. It's not Jesus, Lord of glory. George Whitfield, in one of his last sermons, great, probably the greatest preacher America has ever heard preach, he said, I'm now 55 years of age, and I'm now more convinced. I'm more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself, and without it, you can never be saved. And somebody came up to him and said, why, Mr. Whitfield, why do you speak so often on ye must be born again? And Mr. Whitfield replied in the face of the person, because you must be born again. <laughs> you see, the disciples, if you remember, they were in despair. And they cried out to Jesus after seeing the rich young ruler leave and go away sad. And they're in despair. And they cried out to Jesus, who then can be saved? And what was Jesus' response? Who then can be saved? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which department are you looking in? The man department or the God department? You see, the world sees Jesus Christ and the church as irrelevant. It's irrelevant. What fools these Christians? They're foolish. They're missing out on so much. Robbing themselves of so much. There's so much sex to be had, so much alcohol to be consumed, so much pot to be smoked, so much Netflix, so many movies, so many achievements, so many accomplishments, so many accolades, so many compliments, privileges, responsibilities, life to be lived, cars to be driven, houses to be bought, kitchens and bathrooms to be renovated, careers to climb, colleges and grad schools to get into. Who has time for the church? Who has time for that? It's foolishness. Paul was busy, too, in his supposed zeal for the Lord. And he was killing Christians. And Jesus had to blind him so he could make him see. And he was struck down on his way to Damascus. You remember? And he was humbled. And God struck him down. And Paul looked up and said, Who are you, Lord? He knew who he was. And God changed him took one who was a rebel and turned him into a worshiper. How about you this morning? 
Do you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Have you ever begun to take any thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? It starts in the thought life. Are you motivated by love for Jesus Christ that compels you to act in certain ways and love people in ways that you would have never done before? Have you ever done anything because you love Jesus rather than loving yourself? Have you ever left a sin behind because you love Jesus? If not, it's because you're a natural man. You're operating with natural means, doing natural things, and it's godless. There's no God in it. You're being led by the flesh, not by the spirit, and you sow to the flesh and not to the spirit, and the end of that is death. But if you sow to the spirit, then you reap eternal life. And we are born blind. We need the spiritual optic nerve, Lloyd Jones refers to, to be connected by the Holy Spirit so that we see Jesus Christ and beholding him, we would be transformed from glory to glory into this image from one degree to another. And the one who does this, we're told, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And only by the Spirit of Christ can we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Only the Lord can do that. And now we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're in the God department not the man department. And the same God who could say, let light shine out of darkness and created the universe by speaking it into existence. Paul says that's the very same God who speaks regeneration into the hearts of men. That's what he's saying. Otherwise, we're blinded by Satan himself. Spurgeon in his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher, prince of preachers, last century, Actually, two centuries now. (laughs) He said this. He said, I have thought if God had left me alone and had not touched me by his grace, what a great sinner I should have been. I should have run to the utmost lengths of sin, dived into the very depths of evil, nor should I have stopped at any vice or folly if God had not restrained me. I feel that I should be a very king of sinners if God had left me alone. I cannot understand the reason why I'm saved except upon the ground that God would have it so. I cannot, if I ever look so earnestly, discover any kind of reason in myself where I should be a taker of divine grace. If I am not at this moment without Christ, it is only because Christ Jesus would have his will with me. And that his will was that I should be with him where he is and should share his glory. I can put the crown nowhere but upon the head of him whose mighty grace has saved me from going down to the pit. Looking back on my past life, I can see that the dawning of it all was of God, of God effectively. I took no torch with which to light the sun, but the sun enlightened me. 
I did not commence my spiritual life. No, I rather kicked and struggled against the things of the Spirit. When he drew me for a time, I did not run after him. There was a natural hatred in my soul of everything holy and good. Wooings were lost upon me. Warnings were cast to the wind. Thunders were despised. And for the whispers of his love, they were rejected as being less than nothing in vanity. But sure I am. I can say now, speaking on behalf of myself, he only is my salvation. It was he who turned my heart and brought me on my knees before him. Can you say that this morning? Paul said, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but in power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Is Jesus a servant of shame? Or is he your Lord of glory? He was the crucified Lord of glory. That's our treasure. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your table, we ask that you'd reveal yourself in the breaking of the bread and that we would see you're the friend of sinners and that you are precious. And may we leave off all our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for our love of this world these things of this age that are passing away, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And may we be renewed in doing your will. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.